Hebrews chapter 3. It's our intention to look at verses 1 through 6 tonight of Hebrews chapter 3. The section you can see is uh, a section that shows that Jesus is, is greater than Moses. Look with me in, in verse 1. Uh, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, anytime you see that word therefore in the Bible, it's always pointing backwards. It's pointing toward what was just said before. And for those of you who have been following this study, it's pointing back to chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, where uh, it says that Jesus is our great high priest. And he's saying because Jesus is is our high priest, he wants that to be on our minds as we read these next verses. And he says, holy brothers, and who is he speaking to when he says that? Well, he's speaking to the people of God. And, and in that, you have a description of believers, a description of Christians. Number one, they are holy brothers. Uh, and this shows that, that he's speaking to, to the people of God here that are set apart by God. That's what that word holy means. It means to be set apart. Essentially, it means to be saved. Sometimes the word is translated as sanctified. It means to be set apart. And then he says that we are brothers, which means that we are a part of the family of God. So we are people who have been set apart by God as a part of his family. And he says that we share in a heavenly calling. I want to expound on that for for just a little bit uh, tonight. Uh, First of all, it's a heavenly calling, which means what? Which means it comes from the heavens. Well, it's not the angels calling us. It's not our loved ones calling us from heaven. It's God calling us, isn't it? God is the one who's calling us from heaven. And the word calling there uh, shows us that this is initiated by God. That God is the one calling. God is calling us to Himself. And in all of us who are Christians, all of us who are brothers and sisters in Christ, we all share in that calling. We have been, been called and will be delivered to heaven because it's God who's called us there. We belong to a family whose home is beyond the skies. That's a blessing, isn't it, to know. There's a lot of songs about that. We'll see that, that, that point in this book a lot. In fact, that we belong to a city whose builder and maker is God. And so he's speaking to believers. He's explaining who believers are. And then, then you see what are, are these believers called to do in verse 1. He says, I want you to consider Jesus. And that word consider means to think about Him. It means to, to observe Him. And it's implied that we're to just meditate on the greatness of Jesus. To think about how wonderful Jesus is. And we're actually given a few things to think about concerning Jesus in the title that's given here. Notice he calls him, first of all, Jesus, which is his earthly name. The the idea behind the name of Jesus is, is he became a man. When we think of Jesus, we think of his humanity. And then he calls him the Apostle. The apostle, and an apostle, very generally speaking, was simply one who was sent. He's not an apostle in the same way that Peter and James and John were apostles. It doesn't mean that. It means that that he is one that is sent with a mission to accomplish. Jesus was sent by the Father with a mission to accomplish on this earth, and he accomplished that mission. He says next there that he is the high priest. And, and the, fo- the, the, the focus there is, is twofold. Number one is He makes intercession for us. And number two is that He is our sacrifice. 
as our great high priest. And so here we have all of this put together and and we have confessed Christ as Lord. We have publicly identified with Him. We we recognize Him as our Lord, but, but that should not be something we do one time. It should be something we meditate on day and night. So He says to you, brothers and sisters, you who have been called from heaven by God, been placed in this wonderful family, you need to think about, you need to consider the greatness of Jesus Christ. And folks, that is an everyday thing that we're to do. Every single day. Now, just, just very practically speaking, what can help with that? What, what can help us do that? Well, first of all, Scripture reading. You want to think about Jesus, read Scripture. Jesus is all over the Bible. And number two, um, prayers of thanksgiving. When you pray, thank God for who Jesus is in your life. Thank God for what He's done in your life. And then thirdly, simply meditation. Focused thinking on the person of Jesus, on, on the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you put all those things together, it'll help you consider Him. It'll help you, it'll help you think of having your mind set on heavenly things, as, as Paul said. Now look at verse 2. Who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So it says this wonderful Jesus, this Jesus that we're to meditate on. It was, he said that he was faithful to him who appointed him. And, and he's talking about Christ being faithful to the will of the Father. You see, when Jesus came into the world, he, he talked about how he always did the Father's will, how he always spoke the Father's words. Um, Paul talked about how he was so obedient to the Father's will that, that he was even obedient to death, the death of a cross. So verse 2 begins this comparison of Jesus and Moses. That's where the comparison begins right here. He says, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Now what is God's house? Well, God's house there to the Hebrew people would, would simply be the Jewish nation. That's the house of God. Um, the household, we might say it. Uh, so the writer, when he lo- looks here, he-, he could have recognized now all the failures of Moses. Because when you read the book of the Bible, Moses is a wonderful man. But Moses had a lot of failures in his life too. He was far from perfect. In fact, the Lord would not even allow him to enter into the promised land. Remember that? wouldn't even allow him because... Um, I'll just tell you, I'll just read Scripture and that will tell you what he did. It says because, in Deuteronomy, Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel, for you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I'm giving to the people of Israel. So he said there, he said, to, you know, you're, you're not going to make it. You're not going and so we see there that, that the writer could have brought something like that up about Moses if he was trying to say that Jesus is greater than Moses. That would have been easy to do, wouldn't it? Well, of course Jesus is greater than Moses. I mean, Moses didn't even get to make it to the promised land. But yet Moses was a faithful servant. See, the, the writer is going to show how much greater Jesus is than Moses without even mentioning Moses' failures. Because that would be an easy thing. So he's going to show you that Jesus is so much greater. And in doing so, he's not even going to mention the failures here. Now, how, how, was, how was Moses faithful? We, we could talk about a lot of things. We could say he left Pharaoh's palace and that was a wonderful place to live, wasn't it? Pharaoh's palace, who wouldn't want to live there? But he left it. 
We could say how he led the people out of Egypt, the people who were very difficult to lead, but yet he stood in the front and was willing to die and be the leader of that group. Um, How he delivered the law to the people, how he went up on the mountain, and how he came back down with the law. We could talk about all of of those things as well. He was a faithful man. But but then look at verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor Uh, has more honor than the house itself. So now here's the comparison. Here's the comparison. Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses is, which, by the way, would be quite a statement for faithful Hebrews to hear, wouldn't it? For them to think about, are you greater than Moses? Even even when you look at uh, Judaism today and Orthodox Judaism, Moses is the man... I mean, you know, he looks just like Charlton Heston, right? Who wouldn't, who wouldn't want to like that guy? Moses is, is, is the greatest of men to, to them. So why is Jesus then worthy of more glory? Well, he tells us, he says, because Jesus built the house. Moses is merely a part of the house. Again, what is the house? The house is the people of God, the household, the people of God. Moses was a person who is a part of the people of God. Jesus is the creator of all the people of God. The New Testament equivalent here where it says that Jesus built the house would be where Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know, when you, we've already saw in this book that Jesus created the world. He is, is the creator. And so think about it like this. There could be a people of God without Moses, couldn't it? If Moses was never born, if Moses had never existed, there could still be a people of God. But there could not be a people of God without Jesus. There, so he's saying, look, he says, this is the builder of the house. Jesus is. He's the builder of the house there. And so, not, by the way, not only Moses, but Jesus is greater than every member of the household of God. Moses is simply chosen as a comparison because to the Hebrews, this is the letter to the Hebrews, to the Hebrews, he was the greatest of men. Therefore, if Jesus is greater than Moses, then Jesus is greater than every man. He's already made the case that Jesus is greater than the angels. Now he says the man, he picks the greatest man that the Hebrews could ever think of, and he says that he's greater than him, and he doesn't even mention any of the negative things Moses ever did. You know, it's it's a very humbling thing to know that Jesus doesn't need any of us. (laughs) Amen? You know, we think about, oh, that person's indispensable. There is not an indispensable person in this world. Jesus is the only one, y'all. Everything we see... God could accomplish whatever He wants to accomplish through the least of us. He doesn't need any great man, any great woman. He's more glorious than us, the writer is saying, because without Him, we could not exist. Look at verse 4 now. Now Moses was faithful in all God... I'm sorry, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. I like it that he throws this little existence of God argument here in verse 4. He's saying the existence of a house proves that there's a builder. 
of the house, which is called the teleological argument for the existence of God. If you see that something has been created, there obviously must be something that created what's been created, right? And so that's, that, and I don't want to bore you with all that, but that's a philosophical argument for the existence of God. But here's a point for us to remember. When you accomplish something great like building a house, remember the builder of all things is God. And you and I may accomplish great things, things that, that, that are outstanding. But we couldn't build anything without God because without God, we'd have nothing to build with. Amen? We never have, we can never create anything. We only assemble things. Right? Because, you know, you say, well, well you know, I could, I, could, I could create whatever. And then you say, okay, we'll go to it. And they say, well, hey, give me a Home Depot card. And you say, no, buddy, you have to... That, that's building. That's not creating. That's building. And so that's the point he's making. He said the builder of everything is God because without God, all we can do is assemble. We just take what God has given us and we, and we put it all together. Now, now back to the point here. Jesus is the builder of the house. God builds all things, therefore Jesus is God. So he's making another argument for the deity of Christ here. Remember he said, Jesus built the house, God built all things, therefore Jesus is God. The writer here is an amazing man. We don't know who he is, but he has an amazing mind. He's showing them that, that he's greater than Moses because, because he's God in the flesh. Look at verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So Moses was faithful. Yes, he was faithful. But he was a servant. Which means he spoke for God. He, he testified to the things that were spoken of later. What does that mean? Well, we're still speaking of things that, that Moses testified of. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. He, he wrote that. We're still speaking of it. Um, he preached to the people. Later, he would go out and he, he would preach to the people. Uh, when you think about it, Moses gave us so much. He gave us the sacrificial system. Uh, he gave us the law. Um, he gave us the tabernacle. He told them exactly how to build it. And when you look at the law, the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, the writer of Hebrews is going to show you in this book when we get there that all of this pointed toward Jesus. We still speak of these things, but only as they, as they relate to Christ. And so we're still speaking of the things that, that Moses spoke of even today because the sacrificial system and the law and, and the tabernacle, all that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And then he says in, in, in verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So again here we see, we see the argument set forth that Jesus is greater than Moses because Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, the son of God. Moses is just a servant. Jesus is more than a servant. He's a son. Says Moses, a servant in his master, master's house. Jesus, a son in his own house. I mean, just think about a very wealthy person. You got a wealthy person there, and you have a servant in that house, and then that wealthy person's son in that house. Who, is, who has a higher standing? The son, obviously. And 
so that's, that's the analogy that, that, that the writer is using here. Moses is just a servant. Jesus is a son. And so in a beautiful way, the writer describes believers as, as those whom Christ indwells. He says, we are His house. Man, what a blessing that is, by the way. That is a great, great blessing. That Jesus dwells in us, isn't it? You know, we, we speak of Christ dwelling in our hearts. We, we use that. Well, I ask Christ into my heart. Well, Jesus is in my heart. I think that's too narrow. You know what I mean? Think about that. Christ is in my heart. That's a little narrow. Your heart's about that big. Right? Not a real big organ or muscle or whatever you want to call it. The full Christ is in us, y'all. Jesus isn't pushed off into one chamber of our anatomy, is He? That's not what it means when we think of Christ in the heart. In the old King James language, we'll use like bowels, which is something that's kind of crude to us, but to, 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 to those ancient Greek writers, the bowels was the seat of emotions. And the reason that was is because you know how sometimes you get too nervous and you get sick on your stomach or you get too excited and then your stomach messes up. That's where that whole idea came from there. But I don't want us to ever think that in those, in those terms of the anatomy, Christ is fully in us. Jesus doesn't have a room in our house. He has the whole house. Amen. I mean, from our head, everything we see, everything we think about, everything we listen to, everything we say, to our feet, where we go. Jesus is in us. Now, it's, it's interesting here that, that he ends the verse with a clarification. He says, if indeed we hold fast our confidence. And we're going to spend a little bit of time here tonight because I think Baptists need this. Salvation has always been proven in the Old Testament and the New Testament, has always been proven by perseverance, not profession. Always. Somewhere in the 50s or 60s when people started filling up stadiums and everybody started raising their hand to get saved and all, somewhere along the line there, uh, we forgot about all that and we began to say, well, salvation is proven by profession. And they might even grab a verse like, um, if you confess Christ as Lord, you're saved. Not understanding that that word doesn't mean that you confess Christ as Lord at one point in your life, but that is a continual confession throughout your life. Not just with your words, but with your life. You shout, Christ is my Lord. But I want you to notice, he doesn't say, we will be God's house if we hold fast. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, we are God's house if we hold fast. And that's important because that's showing you that your perseverance proves that you belong to God. It's your perseverance in the faith that proves that you belong to God. And I'm focusing on this because the writer of Hebrews is going to keep hammering that point the whole book. Because he's dealing with Hebrews who are about to give up. He's dealing with these Hebrews who are stopping going to church. He's dealing with these Hebrews who are going back to the Levitical system. He's dealing with these Hebrews who are starting to think, well, you know what? Kind of like they did with, with the wilderness generation. They're starting to think, hey, we had it better when we were Jews than we do when we're Christians. Because now that we're Christians, we're being persecuted. We're losing everything. And you're going to see that this next week as we continue preaching through this book. That he's going to compare a lot of people in the church to the wilderness 
wilderness generation, the generation who lost faith, the generation who gave up. And so he's speaking to these Hebrew people and he wants them to know, look, just because you made a profession, that doesn't mean that you are genuinely saved. Your salvation is proven by perseverance. We are God's house if we hold fast. If we hold fast, he says there. Christ is faithful over God's house to the Son, and we are His house if we indeed hold fast, watch this, our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, who is our hope? It's Christ, right? Christ is our hope. And so the idea there is we boast in Him. We boast in Him. We we don't brag on ourselves, y'all. We brag on Jesus. We say God did it, amen? We say God Not me, but thee, right? You're the one who did it, Lord. Jesus saved me. You know, and I I, I don't want to be too nitpicky here, but I hear people say say things like, I got saved. And I know it's me when you say I got saved. But you know what would be better if you said this? Jesus saved me. Amen? That's a lot better, isn't it? Because one makes it sound like, well, you just decided to do something, and if you decide not to, you'll just quit doing that. No, Jesus saved me. Jesus came to me. Jesus came to me and Jesus saved me, boasting in Jesus. And by the way, if you are saved, you will think of Jesus. I mean, you think about if somebody rescued you, if somebody rescued you from a burning house, if if some person came in there and and when it was all over, you realized, man, if, 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 if he or she had not come in that room, I would have died. You would never forget that person, would you? You'd think about that person, wouldn't you? A lot. And when you understand that Christ has saved you, it's just a natural thing. You boast in Him. You think about Him. Christ has, has saved me. And, and the doctrine of perseverance here that, that, he's, that he's speaking of is per, perhaps one of the most overlooked doctrines in, in the Baptist church. And I've already mentioned, and I don't want to hit this too hard because we're going to have to hit it again because the writer of Hebrews is going to keep hammering this nail. But the book of Hebrews deals extensively with the doctrine of perseverance. So I want to end tonight by mentioning some things about perseverance. We call this the perseverance of the saints. What does this mean? The first thing it means is this. God's salvation is not static. God's salvation is not static. God's salvation, and by static, I mean God just saves you and leaves you to yourself and then you do it on your own for the rest of the way. That's not what God does when God saves you. The salvation of God is an act of salvation. It's an ongoing salvation. It's a powerful salvation. And it involves far more than the will of man. It involves the will of God. That God has saved you. When God saves you, the Bible says that He recreates you. He gives you a new heart. He helps you to begin to see things differently. He enables you to to have a desire for the Word of God and the things of God. And this doesn't go away. But can it it wane? Yes. Can can you live a fleshly life and, and, and have that wane? Yes, you can. Absolutely. But the good thing about God is God by His Holy Spirit will always be showing you, hey, you're wrong. Hey, you need to come back. And God will, by cords of love, continue to pull, back, pull, you, pull you back to Himself. Here's the thing. God's going to get His way. 
Amen. He's going to get his way. So the good thing to do is go ahead and listen to him. God's salvation is not static. So when we think of the perseverance of the saints, that's what we think about. That perseverance means that God's salvation is not static. It's active, it's ongoing, and it's powerful in your life. The second thing is this. The Holy Spirit is more powerful than our own will. And I know that sometimes our will gets in the way. We, we want to do things that God doesn't want us to do. Or we want to stop doing things that, that we're doing for God. The, the, the will is a powerful thing in our life. But the Holy Spirit of God, who is in your life, if you're saved, is far more powerful than your own will. And I want to tell you, if you're saved, if you are saved, you will know the Holy Spirit's in you. You'll know it. Is it a little more difficult for maybe somebody who grew up in church and then just never really strayed, but eventually just came to faith? It's a little more difficult. But you'll still know. Jesus said, you know, it's, it's like the wind blowing. It's a very mysterious thing. But you, you can't see the wind, but you know that it's blowing because you see the effects of the wind on the trees. You can look up at the trees and the trees are blowing. You say, I know the wind's blowing. And so the idea is, is the wind of the Holy Spirit is blowing in your life. And it's a mysterious thing and it's difficult sometimes to comprehend, but you know He's there. You know He's moving in your life. What's going to happen in your life when the Holy Spirit's there? Well, when the Holy Spirit is in your life, you're going to love Jesus. You are. I've said this before and it's such an odd thing to have to say, but you can't be saved unless you love Jesus. Amen. And why do you love Jesus? Because the Holy Spirit comes into your life, shines His light on Jesus Christ for you to see Him. He points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, there will be an interest in the Word of God. The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. The Holy Spirit will point you toward the Bible. Not just to read it, and you should read it, you should meditate on it, but to listen to it preach too. You know, I can't imagine before I was saved ever sitting down and listening to someone preach. That would be just far beyond anything I would ever desire to do. And think about this. Why in the world do people keep coming to hear people preach? It's such an odd thing. In Christianity, and I want to expound on this at a later date. In Christianity is such an odd thing. Where else in the world do people come and gather once a week at least to hear a man preach from the same book for 50, 60, 70 years? Where else does that happen in the world? I can't think of a single, a single place that that happens. So why? Why do they? Because the Holy Spirit has created in the hearts of His people a desire for the Word of God. And therefore, people continue to come and continue to listen to it. So there's a love for Christ. There's a desire for the Word of God. There's a hatred of sin. And I'm not saying you're going to be without sin. But you're going to hate it when you sin. You're going to hate yourself at times. Paul talked about how he just hated himself at times. Oh, wretched man that I am. He said, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? There will be hatred for sin. You see, perseverance includes both belief and practice now. And what I mean by that is this. Perseverance means you continue to believe the truth. And then secondly, you continue to live the truth. And so if you abandon the tenets of the faith, you abandon what Scripture says about Christ, 
what Scripture says about salvation, or if you abandon the practice of the faith, then you're no longer persevering. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is here talking about. And then finally, the fourth thing is, is this. Those who do not persevere did not lose their salvation. They never had it. That's what Scripture teaches. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us. But they went out from us, that it might be made manifest that they were not all of us. John said it in a very beautiful way there. And which, by the way, this is another way that Jesus is greater than Moses. The indwelling Jesus makes sure all His people make it to the promised land. Isn't that good? The indwelling Jesus makes sure all of His people make it to the promised land. Moses couldn't even get himself there. Right? Moses couldn't even get himself to the promised land, y'all. But the writer of Hebrews is here to say that Jesus, the one greater than Moses, is taking us to a greater promised land. And we'll talk about that too soon, the greater promised land. And He's not only there already, but He's going to make sure that all of His people get there. And that's what perseverance is, y'all. Perseverance of this mighty Jesus, this great apostle, this chief high priest who resides inside of those that belong to him. And he is marching them to glory and he'll get all of us there. What a blessing, y'all. Moses, they thought about him walking through that Red Sea. They thought about all that he accomplished. But one thing they knew, they knew he didn't even get to the promised land himself. And almost everybody that followed him didn't get in either. They, only the people under 20 years old because the rest died in the wilderness. Thank God we got one greater than Moses. Amen. Thank God we've got a leader greater than Moses. I'm not going to die in the wilderness, y'all. My body's not going to fall down like they did when they were on their way to Canaan. If you belong to Christ, you'll make it. And God will continue to work in your life. When you get off track, He'll pull you back. When you say, no, Lord, He'll work on you. Till you feel so miserable, He'll say, okay, Lord, you got me. Amen. Hey, i got to raise my hand on that. Amen. He's done it to me more times than I want to mention. Well, amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much for your word.